grasshopper is from our earlier Dave is smaller and doesn't cannibalize and stays within a certain Welcome, welcome. It is September 10th. It's a beautiful fall day. Fall is starting to come in the air. I love this time of year. It's beautiful in Utah and uh, the fall. And we are in meat. This is uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse uh, part 2. We're going to get into some great stuff today. Uh, welcome our audience uh, online. Of course, those who come out to uh, be in the studio, uh, studio group. And let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word, grateful for the book of Revelation, the things that we're learning and, and that we can see and opens up to us by your spirit and by study. We pray that you will help us to uh, understand and be moved and uh, to escape error, but to be kind and loving along the way as it's difficult to agree on things. And uh, just pray for people who are seeking and uh, that you'll help them to find and be free in you. And we pray for those who aren't here with us, had some concerns. Uh, the couple, Grant and Myrna, who are always with us here in the studio, aren't with us right now. We don't know why, so we pray you'll bless them. We pray your blessings upon the people who are under the uh, weather attack in Florida, that you will uh, sustain them and watch out for them. And we just pray that's what you tell us to do, so we're doing it. And uh, be with us now as we consider your words set to music. In Jesus' name, amen. Shoot, 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 shoot. 
looking audience we've ever had all right let's get in deeper to the fifth trumpet last week we talked about the angel eagle the roman army volcanoes and uh the start that uh the star excuse me that came and opened up the abyss and the symbolism of that uh so the abyss has been opened now let's talk about the infamous i remember hearing about these guys since i was a kid the locust people and uh, the abyss is open, verse 3 of chapter 9. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. Now, if you've done any studies in Revelation or heard Revelation taught, especially by a futurist, uh, even by a full preterist, Kenneth Gentry talks about these being demonic uh, creatures from the pit of hell coming up and attacking and, and stinging, but you don't die from the sting, and very literal application of that. And so uh, it says here that they came up out upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. That means to sting, that they were going to cause a sting, uh, this time in Revelation, upon the people. It wouldn't kill them, but it would just put them into misery, it says, for five months. When I was a kid living in Whittier, California, until I was 10, 10, 11, we had a huge field by our house, and someone one night lit that thing on fire. It was full of that yellow grass. And uh, in the morning, we got up, and I'll, I'll never forget that our driveway uh, was just covered with what I thought were locusts, grasshoppers, locusts. From, from like this big, brown, that thick, to small ones, you know, the hooked legs on the back. 
and the garage was so covered you couldn't even see the paint underneath all the locusts that were there. And it was very, very impressive scene. If it was an army, uh, if an army is able to replicate what the locusts look like, it would be a terrifying sight. And so people reading this in Revelation believe that it's an army of actual locust men, that they, they have a, a locust body, but they have the abilities of different animals. And uh, of course, we mentioned last week Charles Manson, Manson. He interpreted the locusts to be the beetles, locust beetles, insects, and that the four, Ringo, George, Paul, and John, would come up, they would be like scorpions with a tail of the cord of the electric guitars, and they were coming out upon the earth. But if you look at scripture, which is where we get our insight into what Revelation is talking about, we don't necessarily look at uh, other places like our imagination. We look to say, hey, what's the basis for locusts in scripture? And within the Canaanites and biblical metaphor, locusts always meant an invading army always an invading army, particularly a Gentile invading army, not necessarily uh, locusts that were the children of Israel, but opposing pagan communities and Gentiles were like locusts when they would invade uh, the nation of Israel. So as we have seen with other facets of the trumpet representations in, in Revelation, there's a parallel here for the plagues that God sent upon uh, Egypt back in, in uh, Exodus, and what we are reading here in the book of Revelation. It's interesting that in Exodus, the plagues were used to break Pharaoh and to allow uh, Pharaoh to let his people go, right, as Moses said. But here at the end of the book of, of, of the Bible, we have Exodus toward the beginning, and God is using these plagues to set his people free that now he is unleashing these things upon the very people he set free. And there's the plagues, there's a picture of the plagues going on here at the end of the biblical narrative. So going all the way back to Exodus 10, beginning at verse 4, God says to Pharaoh, else if thou release, excuse me, else if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring the locusts into thy coast and they shall cover the face of the earth, and one cannot be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field, and they shall fill thy houses and the house of thy servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy father's fathers have seen since the day they're upon this earth unto this day, and he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. Moses says that in God's behalf. So we have already in Exodus a, a, a imagery of locusts. These were real locusts that came in and what they did, hail had fallen before and broken up the crops. Now these locusts came in and they ate whatever was left. So we're talking about true devastation upon the land here. Very impressive scene and if an army were ever to replicate a swarm of locusts, all dressed in armor with swords, the sight would, would be uh, like this, like I just said. So let's break down the biblical idea of locusts and see what we can find to see if it helps us interpret who these or what these locusts are that are coming up out of the abyss, which we talked about last week. 
Uh, first of all, I wrote on the board, they're kind of in chronological order, and we're going to get to that actual locus that is drawn up there as an example in a minute when we talk about it. But below, we have, first of all, understand that the Hebrew word for locus is hargol. It, we transliterate that into English as an H-A-R-G-O-L, locus. But the Arabic word for troops, locus troops, is hargal, H-A-R-G-A-L. And so we see <clears throat> that there's a parallel here between the use of locusts in Scripture and troops of something. That is going to help us with our interpretation of what these troops of creature beings are that Revelation is talking about, or whatever they are. So the similarity between these words from neighboring languages and peoples implies there was a common belief or origin when, script, when locusts were talked about by them. And it meant it implied a troop of troops of, of something coming upon you uh, in Middle Eastern uh, cultures. Uh, and we see this illustrated in the first uh, chapters of Joel, where the Babylonian army in the 6th century B.C. is portrayed as none other than a swarm of locusts. Babylonian army, Babylonian troops, swarm of locusts is how they are portrayed in Joel. So we're starting to see that that is how the Bible will use locusts when it talks about them, that there's a connection to armies. The head of the locusts is very similar to a horse. If you look up on that drawing, you can see that, you know how a horse's head is long and it has its mouth down there below? Well, uh, anciently, they almost all cultures have described the locust as having the head of a horse. And um, this, this caused one ancient writer in Latin to say, caput hoblegum equi instar pronus spectus, which is, they have an oblong head like that of a horse bending downward. So just know these parallels when we're describing this creature, these creatures coming up out of the abyss. Out of, the abyss. Uh, of interest, the Italians, I put this on the board, are, they call locusts uh, cavaletta. And from that we get calvary. Cavalry. Cavalry, not calvary. Cavalry. As in a cavalry of horsemen riding in. So you're starting to see the connections between troops on horses, locusts, and how they are all used as imagery in Scripture. Uh, the Arabic word, a writer named Bochart uh, says in 1692, the locusts resemble 10 different kinds of animals and says the horse in its head, the elephant in its eyes. I'm not sure I see that, but I mean, maybe it's just talking about the big blackness of the eyes. Maybe elephant, I haven't seen an elephant's eyes up close to determine, the bull in its neck, thick-looking neck, the stag in its horns, the scorpion in its belly, the eagle in its wings, the camel in its thighs, the ostrich in its feet, and the serpent in its tail. So uh, all this being said, its most prominent resemblance is to the horse and its facial features, which the prophet Joel mentions, and the Arabic writers said are the chief characteristics, okay? Then in Judges chapter 6, verse 3, four, uh, 4, and 5, if you want to read it with us at home, it says this, And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. So remember, we have a Gentile army now, what I said earlier. 
and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth. This is what the army did. Till thou come to Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass, for they came up with their cattle and their tents and they came as grasshoppers of a multitude. For they and their camels were without number and they entered into the land to destroy it. Now we've talked about how what Rome did when it invaded Israel is first it came in. Here's Jerusalem, high point. It came in and it wiped out the surrounding areas. It didn't take on the big monster first. It wiped out the surrounding areas. It had a scorched earth policy. It took away their stuff so that a third of the land was burned. We just talked about that in previous chapters. This is what the Roman army did, and they waited to lay siege on Jerusalem after they had wiped out the surrounding area, like locusts would if they came upon a land and ate all their crops. More references uh, to locusts and armies are found. I put them on the board. Judges 7.12, Jeremiah 51, and Nahum 3.5. So the fact that foreign Gentiles' army are symbolized by locusts is not just found in the Bible. The Talmud, uh, that is um, the Jewish writings, the Talmud, you have the Tanakh, which is their Old Testament. The Talmud is, uh, came up after New Testament time, and it was uh, all the rabbinic writings about their faith, okay? Listen to how the Talmud describes the destruction of Jerusalem. Quote, the destruction of Jerusalem during Israel's first century war with Rome came through the Kamza, locusts, and a bar Kamza, son of locusts. That is how the Talmud, the history of the Jews, describes how Israel was, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. He literally says, by the locusts and the son of locusts. Now, it does not mean by an actual creatures. We know that the Temple uh, Mount wasn't knocked down by locusts. It was knocked down by invading armies. So, um, and it doesn't mean demons either, which, which I'm just trying to point out. We're not talking about demons from the pit of hell that have come around and done this. We are talking about armies. So it's really important because right there in the Talmud, a book that's compiled around 500 AD, we are told by the Jewish historians that Jerusalem was destroyed by locusts and the son of locusts, which represents, of course, the Roman armies and legions. So yet, some are still looking for the fulfillment of this part of the fifth trumpet and are looking for a locust-type creature to actually come out and sting and be built the way that the, uh, John describes these army people and uh, et cetera. So to me, this is a non-contextual, it's a non-historical, hysterical view. And it's really unfortunate that we continue to teach it because it just keeps people off the mark about what scripture is telling them. So let's move on to another uh, bit of information. I put it in order on the board. I just talked about the Talmud, the Gentile, the word Gentile under Strong's Concordance. Strong's Concordance is a lexicon where it takes Greek words and it helps us understand what those Greek words meant. And this is what it says under the term Gentile. Now remember I've said locusts were representational of Gentile armies. So under the word Gentile, number 1471 of Strong's, Gawi, that's Gawi, Goy, you've heard of Jews say, oh, he's a Goy. 
That means he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew, a Goy. A Gawi is the, the, the word there. And it says apparently from the same root as 1465, a foreign nation, hence a Gentile. Also figuratively, a troop of animals or a flight of locusts. That's in the very definition of Gentile in Strong's Concordance. So we know that if the Jews thought that the locusts were Gentiles, in some sense represented them, that is what scripture is talking about. I think it's fascinating. So in discussing Revelation 9 and the locust invaders, the subject is multifaceted. When laying siege to a city, invading forces like a swarm of locusts will leave the surrounding countryside, as I said, stripped of vegetation and of food, and in order that would be there to feed the war effort, it's, it gets rid of it, so there's none there. Additionally, these armies will often set fire to anything the enemies might find useful, and that is represent, uh, representative of what the locusts will do. They'll eat it down to the ground so there's nothing left. And um, locusts in Palestine, listen to this, were known to the people of Palestine as burners of the land. Burners of the land. So earlier last week or two weeks ago, we talked about how the angel said, and a third part of the plants, and a third part of this would be burned. This is just talking about the, what the Roman scorched earth policy would do to all the surrounding areas so that the people would have nothing to uh, reach out for for sustenance. Then let's look at the very physical form of the locust drawn on the board. Uh, again, there's another Arab saying that says, has a head like a horse, the breast of a lion, feet like a camel, a body like a serpent, an antenna and hair of a maiden. Now, I was curious about that line, hair of a maiden, because it's included in John's description of these um, locust creatures. And a lot of people will say, yeah, the Roman soldiers underneath their helmets had long hair like a maiden. But how is it, is it really portrayed in the creature of an actual uh, uh, locust? Excuse me. <coughs> so I looked up a picture, which is I, helped try, I tried to dry, draw on the board. And I tried to see, does the locust really represent in any way the hair of, uh, of uh, a maiden, the way that this is likened to in Revelation. And you can see that on right here, I'm gonna go to the board, Mary, Kathy, that behind its head, there's this like uh, shield thing that goes down its back. And so I, I, when, I, when I saw that and I kind of examined it, that made sense to me, that that would be its representation of a hair like a maiden coming right off its head, right? Um, so that's something to consider. So again, I submit to you that John is describing the Roman military, which was going to soon attack Jerusalem, and Jesus is warning John here to spread the news to the seven churches. This is what it's going to look like. Now, <coughs> I'm really sorry. <coughs> Last week, using the Bible, we discussed how they were coming out of the abyss, out of the smoke of the abyss and how a third of the sky was darkened. So now let's read how the locusts that come out of the abyss are described in Revelation chapter nine, verse three through seven. Ready? And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, the Gehei, the land, and unto them was given power as the power of scorpions of the earth have power. 
And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And we've talked about who those men were. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as a torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in those days men shall seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses. The shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were crowns of gold, and their faces were the faces of men. So there we are able to start to bring in actual soldiers into the picture. They had the faces of men. They had crowns of gold on their head, their helmets. And they, had, they, they went into battle like horses prepared to go into battle. We are looking at Roman soldiers here. Parallels to this description of locusts are found in Joel 2.4, where it says, the appearance of them is as the appearance of horses and horsemen, so shall they run. Revelation continues, and it says at verse 8, and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings as it was the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. That sounds very clear. I mean, it was their horses and their chariots that gave them the sound of the wings, and they had tails like unto scorpions, and their stings were in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. We're gonna get to that five months part in a second. So in this chapter, the author of Revelation describes that Roman military, which was soon to attack Jerusalem as a plague of locusts would come from the abyss. The soldiers of this, the soldiers, the soldiers of this vast Roman military are said to breathe fire, to have women's hair, long, scary hair, lion's teeth, serpent's tails, scorpion's tail, serpent head, horse heads, uh, scorpion's tails. Um, so this odd choice of symbolism, like much in John's vision of Revelation, has a double meaning. It seems like he, here things are really starting to get out there. We're, he's now using this imagery to describe stuff, and it's getting harder and harder for us to really uh, see it unless we really study. Well, did you know that the Roman legions were identified as he starts to go into all these descriptions of, you know, they had the sound of chariots and the scorpion sting and they had teeth of lions and hair of a woman and breastplates of iron and all these things. Did you know that the Roman legions that came in to destroy Jerusalem were organized in some of their sim symbolism under zodiac signs. Uh, and their zodiac sign was, uh, represented the constellation in the sky underneath the day that they were formed. So if the const main constellation in the sky, for instance, was Leo, when the 12th legion of the Roman army was formed, they would be considered, they would show the constellation of Leo and they would be known as the lion constellation, the, the lion tribe, not tribe, the lion uh, troop, okay? So I didn't know this before digging in, but each Roman legion and auxiliary cohort often carried the image of that constellation 
or the sign of the zodiac with them going into battle that they were formed under when that troop came together. So we now are going to start now we're going to start to see some really radical stuff going on here the way John is describing these Roman armies and through the imagery of a of a, a locust. So the sign for the zodiac for the particular legion is represented again under the month that it was created. The fact that this army from the abyss that John is describing comes out in the form and images that are attributes of the zodiac broadly hints that these locust armies again are Roman armies. The fact that the Roman legions are described in the imagery of the zodiac also serves as an important literary function that complements the major theme in Revelation. So stay with me, hang with me. The zodiac, the stuff that's still here around today, signs of the zodiac, what sign are you, was developed uh, by ancient Babylon. So it's been around a long, long, long time. I mean, not have anything to do but look at the stars and, and study what was going on overhead. And therefore, the fact that the Roman legions are described in stereotypical Babylonian uh, iconography, meaning they are described as Babylon in Revelation. Rome is Babylon. And because they are wearing the signs of the zodiac that Babylon constructed, we have a... a triangulation of those facts into their establishment. Um, remember, Rome is called Babylon in Revelation, and Israel is called Babylon too in Revelation because she has slept with Rome. She has fornicated with Rome. Rome is her idolatrous lover, not God. And so uh, Israel is also equated to Babylon. So now listen carefully. The very choice of constellations, the very choice of constellations used here in Revelation 9 to describe this army are the very constellations that were visible in the night sky on the first night that Titus came in the, to siege uh, Jerusalem for five months. Did you hear me? That what was in the night sky were the constellations, the very same constellations that were visible in the night sky the night Titus five-month siege of Jerusalem began. So there's a writer named Morris, uh, and he says, um, through zodiac imagery of this chapter, John is sending us four messages. Now, you, now try to understand. Back then, they knew the skies. That's how they did so much. It did, they did it through the constellations, and it was very important to them. Going all the way back to Babylon, so we're talking now about uh, uh, 70 AD, those people knew the signs. And so John is describing this army that's going to come up and it's going to have this symbolism that is seen directly in the heavens, played out before them. So the, this writer Morris, he says, one, the zodiac symbolism in this chapter is designed to describe the appearance and tactics of the army that would soon invade Jerusalem. He says that's one reason that John is telling them this revelation and Jesus is giving them this revelation so the people can see what is happening. Second, the zodiac symbolism points to the Roman legions, which each represented a constellation of the night sky. You're going to see that in a second. The zodiac iconography hints at the identity of the army as spiritual Babylon. 
this army invading us is spiritual Babylon. Why? Because they're wearing the Babylonian constellations of the zodiac signs on their uh, persons as they come in in troops. And four, the constellations of the zodiac referred, uh, referred to in this chapter point to the time of the attack. So now listen to this. We can, astronomers today, can go back and they know the exact time when certain constellations were in certain place. So we know that the attack upon Jerusalem before the five-month siege was on the day of Passover. We can go back, our scientists, and they can say, on Passover, 70 AD, that night in the sky, these were the constellations that were in place. All right, okay? And what we have there is uh, a correlation between the content of Revelation and the content of the night sky on the night of Passover that the Roman army came in to destroy Jerusalem once and for all. Titus began his assault on Jerusalem uh, on Passover, the anniversary in which the, the people had killed the Messiah. This was on the very anniversary. This is a historical fact, all right? And so on that board, I mean, on the board, I've written the constellations that were present in that night sky. They were Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, what's called uh, Opiacus and Sagittarius. They would have stretched across the night sky and it says, and a band with the hydra below Leo and Virgo to the southwest. Now, I don't know astronomy or astrology or any of that stuff, but the way they describe it is those Leo, Virgo, Libra, uh, Scorpio, Achicus, and Sagittarius were stretched across the night sky in a band with the hydra below Leo and Virgo to the southwest. That's how it's described. Most of the symbolism in this chapter comes from those constellations and how they were described by the Babylonians. In verse 8 and 9, the locusts of Revelation 9 are said to have the head and teeth of a lion. Okay, so look at, we have up there on the board, Leo. When a nighttime observer is facing north on Passover, these attributes are on display just over the western horizon in the constellation of Leo. So, John is giving them code for this is who's coming and this is how it's going to look and the night sky will tell you so. And so he's, he's given descriptions of what these armies are going to be. Along with what is called the ecliptic, just below Leo is the Lady Virgo, uh, given rise to verse eight and a woman's hair, okay? And then below Virgo are the scales of Libra. Now, when so far in our study of Revelation have we talked about scales? Well, the four horsemen rode through and one of them held what? Scales in his hands, like the scale of Libra. This was a constellation present. The four horsemen were bringing about what the trumpets, what the vials, what the, un what the ceilings were all unveiling. So we have a fulfillment, full circle of all this stuff. Revelation, uh, in Revelation 9.15, the four horsemen of Revelation of Revelation 6 are being relay, uh, released, um, and one of them is holding the scales of Libra, warning uh, uh, Jerusalem to ration its food for this coming siege. 
The next constellation in this procession is Scorpio, symbolized the tail of the scorpion in verse 10. It will as if the sting of a scorpion. And interestingly, and also Hellenistic calendars, Hellenistic calendars have, this, have the locust as part of their astrological uh, thing. And I don't know how much it plays into, but there's another parallel to it all. So just above Scorpio is um, Ophiuchus, and that's a serpent bearer. That's what that means, a serpent bearer. The constellation Ochiapus is a man holding a snake. And so here you can see the serpent head and the tail symbolism in verse 19. And then at the end of the southern horizon is a centaur with Sagittarius at the southeast. And Sagittarius and centaurs are both centaurs, half man, half horse. So we have the horse imagery, we have the face of the man imagery, we have all of it coming combined in these two star cluster account for the imagery of the horse uh, man with the face of a horse with the face of a man. So finally, directly beside these signs of the zodiac in part of the sky called the sea lies the hydra. And this constellation originally represents a fire-breathing leviathan, a seven-headed serpent. That seven-headed serpent is described by John and the prophet Daniel to symbolize Rome. You can read about that in the book of Daniel. So often, then after, okay, so then after describing the locust, John writes back in Revelation 9, verses 10 and 11, and they had tails like scorpions, and their stings were in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. This is believed to have been their swords as they sat on their horse, coming out from behind them were swords, and those were the stings that were in their tails, and they were going to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which was the angel of the bottomless pit. Now that sounds like, oh, that's why so many even uh, preterists say, oh, this was demonic. This is, this is an evil angel coming up as their king of these demonic uh, beings. But just remember how uh, Jews wrote, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue, his name is Apollyon, okay? <coughs> Why do you suppose that John would include the Greek definition of Abaddon here? He'd say it's known as Abaddon in the Hebrew, but in the Greek tongue, he's known as Apollyon. There's a reason for that, and we'll get to it. So some amazing facts about the five months the locusts would hurt men and this person, Apollyon. First of all, John's vision of locusts tore many men for five months listen to this, is parallel to the amount of times locusts would invade Israel and plague farmers, five months. That's, this, that's the same cycle that the locusts would come in and do their business in that land for centuries, had done it. It also mirrors the length of the Roman siege in Jerusalem in 70 AD, which led to the city's downfall. It was five months that the city itself was under attack, actual attack. Prior to that, it was just hurting them and causing them to suffer, but it wasn't to, uh, and so they sat for five months. It took five months for it to happen, but prior to that, they were just in insufferable situation. So the Roman siege took place during the same months that the locusts invaded Israel. This is all in the same time calendar. Josephus spoke of men longing for death during this time, just like John saw in his visions, 
And just like Jesus said when he was alive, the daughters of Jerusalem are gonna be screaming for death and you're gonna look for the mountains to fall on you and it's not gonna happen. That's in Luke 23. Now, the name of the locust army leader is Apollyon in the Greek and it's remarkably similar to the 15th Roman legion which is known as Apollinaris, which Titus led. Titus led Apollo, Apollonius, that whole legion into Jerusalem when he came. The, uh, and that legion was named after the Greek god Apollo, okay? And so I'll come back to Apollo in just a second, about this five-month period. <coughs> it was the time that the Roman siege lasted around Jerusalem, and during that time, the Romans didn't take the city, that five months, sorry, but they let the work of the siege take place internally. I'm really sorry. <coughs> I gotta get it out. And so what they did was they weakened the city's defenses and they allowed conditions to bring those people inside to a state when they wished that they had died. That's the sting that it's talking about. You're not gonna die from it. You're gonna get the scorpion sting and it's gonna hurt like mad, but you're just gonna suffer. And that's what they did for five months in preparation to go in and finally destroy the city. They let the inhabitants suffer. Who did? The Roman soldiers, who were what? Gentile army, doing what? Dressed like locusts, coming in and they let them suffer up there. Uh, as we've noted, what happened was inside Jerusalem vicinity, there were zealots who thought that they could beat the Roman armies and they had had some victory. So what they did was they said, how do we get all the rest of our people to fight with us? They're being fearful. Let's burn all the food stores. And so they went and they torched all of their own food. And they thought that that would get everybody in Jerusalem to say, let's rise up and fight, we're getting hungry. But it didn't do that. It just caused more suffering among them for the five months they were on the mount. The food disappeared and the people then started eating belts and shoes and each other. That's how miserable it got, right? They were stung like, a, by, like by a scorpion, but they weren't dying. Uh, noted fulfillment guy, his name's Kenneth Gentry in his book, Before Jerusalem Fell, page 248. He cites a biblical scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, who says in his New Testament history, Titus began the siege of Jerusalem in April 70. The defenders held out desperately for five months. But by the end of, the, of August, the temple area was occupied and the holy house burned down and by the end of September, all resistance to the city had come to an end. Here in verse six of chapter nine, John's readers are told that people would seek death and not find it, long to die, but death would flee from them. Josephus records that during the height of the siege, 70 AD, surviving Jews, quote, poured forth their congratulations on those whom death had hurried away from heart-rendering scenes. In other words, those who died, they were saying congratulations, congratulations. These people were envious of death, Josephus says. Thousands died from starvation. Josephus also records that when the temple was burned in August of 70 AD, many survivors retreated to what's called Upper Jerusalem and there longed for death. In Josephus Wars 672, 
he writes that, quote, as they saw the city on fire, they appeared cheerful and put on joyful countenances in expectation, as they said, of death to end their miseries. So I don't think Josephus knew Jesus said, you're gonna seek for death and you're not gonna find it. But he is recording exactly what happened here. And of course, this is reminiscent of his Jesus words to the uh, daughters of Jerusalem and their children. Now, even really esteemed fulfillment guys like Kenneth Gentry maintain that these locusts were demonic creatures. Uh, and while demons do have the ability to possess people, I don't take such a view. I'm convinced that all the factors we have discussed have dovetailed into the overall scene of it being actual men, actual armies, actual Gentiles, dressed in armor, Romans with long hair, having their mouthpieces and their stuff, faces like men on horseback, and having the ability to sting and not kill them uh, for five months. As an interesting aside, I thought I'd include this. Uh, I've never read this before, but it comes from Josephus, and I read it this week. In his War of the Jews, listen to what he adds in terms of a description. Uh, some people think this has something to do with the long hair, but it's not even close to what's uh, contextual. But listen to this quote. With their insatiable hunger for loot, these are the people in Jerusalem, they ransacked the houses of the wealthy, murdered men, violated women for sport. They drank their spoils with blood. And from more satiety and shamelessness gave themselves up to effeminate practices, plaiting their hair and putting on women's clothes, drenched themselves with perfumes, and painted their eyelids to make themselves attractive. They copied not only merely the dress, but also the passions of women, devising in their excess of licentiousness unlawful pleasures in which they wallowed in as a brothel. Thus they entirely polluted the city with their foul practices. Yet though they wore women's faces, their hands were murderous. They would approach with min mincing steps, then suddenly become fighting men and whipping out their swords from under their dyed cloaks would run through every passerby. That's, that's from wars, Josephus Wars 4, 9 through 10. 9, call in 10. That, that's, I mean, we've heard of Jesus saying, it's not gonna get any worse. There, and there won't be a time hereafter that will be worse than this scene. That's a scene from it of how bad it got in that city of Jerusalem before it was destroyed by the Roman soldiers. Okay, verse 11, chapter nine, we learn that the king over his army was named Abaddon in the Hebrew, Apollyon in the Greek. According to Livius, that's an online ancient history of uh, encyclopedia history, compiled by a Dutch historian named Jonah Lindering, Apollo was the favorite god of the Roman emperor Augustus. For this reason, the famous 15th Roman legion is called Legio 15 Apollinaris. When the Jewish revolt against Rome began in 66 AD, the 15th legion, Apollinaris, was moved from Alexandria, Egypt, and called to advance toward Judea. In 67 AD, this legion captured Josephus in Galilee. After Vespasian was named emperor in 69 AD, his son Titus led that 15th legion, Apollinaris, to Jerusalem. This is how famous it is. Apollinaris 
and, and, and John says, and the name of their king will be Apollyon in the Greek. After a five-month siege, Titus and his legion Apollinarius overthrew Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, burned the city. It appears that Titus was the Apollyon uh, of Revelation 9-11. That's how I would see it automatically. We'll return to this idea more before, uh, as we wrap up our time today with some views of Abaddon or Apollyon. Many believe that the king of locusts is an angel, uh, is a demon, is Satan coming up from out of the ground, all the imaginative stuff. Now, it's interesting because there's some, there's some uh, parallels to angels in this name. Abaddon is a transliteration of the Hebrew word for destruction. So they called this angel Abaddon, and, uh, which would qualify as an angel in the biblical sense. Abaddon is also used virtually and interchangeably with Sheol in the Old Testament and the abyss. These are, Sheol isn't a word but uh, in Revelation here, but abyss certainly is. So we have some play on words going on here. And you can find applications to this in Job 26, Job 28, Job 31, Psalms 88, 11, Proverbs 15. All talk about that imagery. So again, as we have seen through Revelation and the Bible written large for us, there's a multitude of meanings tapped into this one word. Now, just as a side note, as we wrap this up, I'm kind of a freak about uh, order and, and I see order and systems in things where there may not be. And I've always been that way. I, I kind of connect things where they aren't connectable. And that can be a fault when you're teaching because I might be making connections where there aren't any. But in my artistic mind, I see God as the same way with what he's doing. And that's why I like that level of, of playing boards that are going on here, because we have things being played out that all over the course. It, to me, it's like we have a hub, and we don't just have two spokes going into it, uh, going this way and, and that way, four spokes, or six spokes. We have them coming in from a million different places, and God is... He is bringing forth meaning and continuity in all of that, all of it. And it's really hard unless you're kind of uh, into the word and finding out what the historical setting is to see it making sense. But if you take the time, which is one of the reasons I have enjoyed studying Revelation, is this stuff does start to come together in a very rational, historical, actual manner. And it's not this futuristic vision that people have allowed it to be. So uh, I see this as having little in scriptures having a single purpose. So when you read of one thing in scripture, it's very rare that it's just gonna have one connection. It's going to be connected to all those other things. And that's why I'm fascinated by this. So while it does appear that Apollyon might be an angel, there's no doubt that this angel has a human counterpart. All that was to say that while Apollyon could be an angel of destruction, which people read it in that way and they say he was just an angel of destruction, there's a human counterpart, one of those other spokes to it that God is using to bring the full picture. And as frequently mentioned in Revelation, as things are happening in heaven, things are also being mirrored as happening down on earth. I will give you a new heaven and a new earth. Well, we see it in heaven and we see it on earth. There's a comparison between the two. So events said to have transpired in spiritual realms are transpiring in the physical realms. 
and we're reading about John trying to make sense of where this stuff is all happening, and he's trying to describe this hub with all these millions of spokes, and we're trying to get it, so it's not that easy. But the fact that Polyon or Abaddon is said to be an angel does not mean that he wasn't also a man. And um, you remember when we went all the way back to the third chapter, I think it was, of Revelation, where the seven churches, it said, have seven angels. And, and, and I concluded in our teaching that those seven angels were simply the seven pastors of the seven churches. We went through all the other things that they could possibly be, angels from heaven, et cetera, messengers on earth, but they were the messenger from God to those seven churches. And it used angel there. So men can also be known as angels, and you can read that all through scripture. But why would a man be called the angel of the abyss? And before answering that question and wrapping up our time, let's turn to the implicit meaning of that name, Apollyon. Apollyon is the Greek play on words for Apollo and destroy. And the blending of those two words is meant to call attention to this being's identification with the Greek god Apollo and him being an active destroyer of Jerusalem. Well, the active destroyer of Jerusalem was Titus and who was under Kaiser's favorite god, Apollo. And he led the army, Apollonius, into to destroy the 15th legion to destroy Jerusalem. So as I've already strongly suggested, Apollon is Vespasian's son, Titus, the commander of Legio 15 Apollonaris, 15 Apollonai legion that did the actual destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and I hope that makes uh, sense. And the 15th legion always carried an emblem of Apollo and of Apollo's favorite animals. Just as a side, guess what one of Apollo's favorite holy animals was? A locust. So we bring it all again, back in again, of what John was trying to tell them. Easy to see why Revelation chose jo uh, locust to symbolize the Roman army. So devoted uh, to Titus was his army that at the taking of the Jewish temple, they unanimously, at the taking of the Jewish temple, they unanimously declared him emperor of Rome, which is the fulfillment of verse 11, where they say he's the king of this army. He's the king of these locusts because they unanimously elected him emperor. He had already been in the coronation of his father, coronated as emperor, but there they unanimously elected Titus as emperor, and that would be emperor of the locusts that invaded Jerusalem and destroyed it. All right, let's stop there. Thanks for hanging with, a lot of stuff. Questions, comments, insights? Whoo. Someone wanna repeat all that? <laughs> all right, nothing? Let's pray. Lord, all around us in this nation, in this world, we're seeing destruction. I think that it's a cycle that goes to call all of us to look to you to reflect upon our ways and as a nation and as a people, we pray that we will. And that we'll let these uh, disasters going on around the world uh, move us toward you and not just think that it's all about this life. No problem, Lord, with the historical cycle that the book of Revelation presents. But Lord, let us use reason when we communicate with each other and let's use the Bible in a contextual, reasonable, historical, spiritual sense to understand what is being said there. And when the promise was that Jesus was coming back to 
stop and save those who were his from the destruction we're reading about that he did and that that occurred and he fulfilled his promise and the promises the apostles gave. So help us to be able to balance all this and to balance it in love. And those, those believers and friends who are making uh, mountains out of uh, proverbial molehills around us that we will help to explain and help to teach and help to guide and use this book and what is being said to uh, the advantage of truth. That you'll help us as we exit here. We'll consider these things. We'll let your spirit work upon our minds and hearts and uh, consider how they work in our lives, uh, if they do at all. Lord, we pray for the people on our list, Monica's family in Fort Lauderdale. We pray for Adams Road and, and Adams Road's uh, family who's out there, his parents, his parents, meaning the boy's parents, and uh, all who are in Florida and Texas. We just pray for everybody who's in these disaster modes now that the same purpose of the invading armies will be used by the invading messengers of horrible weather that we look to ourselves and look at our lives and we uh, see where we are. We pray for Diana in the hospital. We pray for Grace, our little friend who's undergoing chemotherapy. And we pray for each other. Help us to move out and be Christians to our neighbors. Help us to be verbs, not just nouns for you, Lord. Not that we just know who you are as the Savior and King and Lord, uh, but that we are a verb in your name and we live that love as we go forward in our lives. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find.